0: As senators get their first look at an FBI report, it's a Texan at the center of the fight over the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. The story today on The Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised no
0: surprises. I'm David Brown. Ted Cruz now on a top 10 endangered senators list and a Texas congressional district that used to be a GOP easy win now looking like more of a toss-up. We'll tell you which one. Also, it was a tough season for the flu last year. Now, a top Texas researcher says the vaccine this year may be marginally less effective. Why officials say it's important to give it a shot. Plus, a surprise hit at the state fair, a return to its rural roots. Whole lot more coming up on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Thursday, October 4th. Thanks for joining us as we round the corner toward the weekend. I'm David Brown. Normally, this is when things slow down, but from the looks of it this hour, it's going to be a working weekend for members of the United States Senate and a riveting one for the rest of us. As we speak, members of the U.S. Senate are being ushered in one by one to a secure area to view what's officially called the FBI's supplemental background investigation of Brett Kavanaugh, the controversial nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by three women. This report consists of summaries of the content of the FBI's interviews, but the media has not had access to the findings. In fact, Senate staffers are not allowed to look at the report, which is on paper, not a computer file or a PDF to prevent any leaks. Secrecy is the operative word here because the report will not be made public. Now a timeline is beginning to form around the confirmation vote itself. GOP leaders plan a test vote sometime tomorrow with a showdown roll call over Kavanaugh's confirmation likely over the weekend. Just before we hit the airwaves on this Thursday, one of the central figures in that vote was getting his first look at the report, Texas Senator John Cornyn. Widely regarded as the second most powerful person in the Senate, getting enough Republicans to back the nominee may ultimately come down to him. As Maria Recio is reporting, she's Washington correspondent for the Austin American-Statesman. Maria, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about, uh, well, something that struck you about uh, how John Cornyn is taking a role front and center here and how it compares with a man, another Texan, that used to be described as the master of the Senate.
2: Yes, that would be LBJ, because before he was president, he was, uh, first he was the Senate uh, Majority Whip, which is the job that Cornyn has now, and then he became leader, and uh, he became very famous for the Johnson treatment since he was very, very tall. He would uh, sometimes, you know, if there was a vote that he couldn't get, he would just lean over and either cajole, put his arm around or jab his finger into someone's chest uh, to, to see what, what was it going to take to get that person's vote.
0: So uh, a little okay. in- intimidation, a little uh, persuasion, you might say, and now a Cornyn. A little flattery. A little yes. flattery. Now Cornyn finds himself in that role, a role which I guess he has as whip although he hasn't really, uh, it seems like he's been reluctant to assert himself in, in that posture.
2: Well, his style is um, a little different, even though he's also quite tall, as was uh, Johnson. But he is mainly around all the time. And in fact, he uh, we talked to him yesterday, and uh, he said that uh, you know, he's all Kavanaugh all the time. And, and that is, of course, in terms of uh, trying to get through the nomination of the Supreme Court uh, would-be justice, Brett Kavanaugh, which is very controversial. And so he's spending a lot of time. Apparently, uh, the, the trick to this is, and I think Johnson knew it too, is uh, the, the face-to-face contact. And so there are three undecided Uh, if you will, Republican lawmakers. Uh, There's a a couple of Democrats or two, at least one Democrat, but it it all comes down to four people at this point, and three of them are Republicans. And two of them are women. One is uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mm -hmm. Susan Collins of Maine, and Jeff Flake of Arizona, who, uh, as you may recall last week, was the one who uh, sort of forced the the issue. And we had this uh, short-term FBI uh, investigation, which is being released today well being released to the senators not to us
0: right so now the fbi investigation has uh, has been completed as i understand it and senators are getting their first look at the documents is it your sense that this is going to uh, make senator cornyn's uh task even more difficult or is there any way of, of knowing yet i presume uh those outside the senate proper have not had a chance to read this document
2: i think that cornyn has anticipated uh, the, the kinds of things that will be in the report, the, the heavy drinking, you know, the, um, uh, you know, kind of raucous behavior. And, you know, maybe this is just more of an elaboration of it. Um, I, I, I think he's ready with that. And he does have answers. I think what made his job more difficult, and, and he acknowledges much yesterday, and, and I have a story about that in the paper today, about how the, um, president's remarks at a rally in Mississippi were actually, you know, when he was, he seemed to be taunting the, um, the first, Doctor uh, uh, accuser, Dr. Ford, correct. And, um, you know, he said that that was, you know, that was a problem for him because I mean, two of the three Republicans he's trying to persuade are women. And of course they were, you know, particularly offended by it though. I, th- I think Senator Flake was as well. So I think, uh, you know, Cornyn's, uh, the tactic is to just be ever-present he does have this kind of thoughtful manner about him and um, you know kind of reassuring I mean he can get you know very uh, animated but for you know for the most part he is you know just he's more reserved
0: so in a sense this is Cornyn's moment as well I mean uh, whether Kavanaugh uh, Kavanaugh nomination goes forward or does not in a sense is a test for Texas's senior senator
2: Absolutely. In fact, uh, he said as much yesterday. He said that this was the most difficult um, ex- experience he's had in his time as whip. And uh, by the way, he that time as whip is about to come to an end because it's term limited. He has um, six years, so at the end of this year, he will lose his nice office and his security detail and um, the um, you know the, the kind of the perks, the high visibility he has now as whip. Um, he's still going to be a close aide to McConnell, um, McConnell has, has said, but um, but I, I think he's looking uh, in the future at some point to actually be leader. So this would be a very important victory to make that happen.
0: Maria Ressio is Washington correspondent for the Austin American Statesman. Thanks so much for joining us on The Standard. Thank you so much. For the first time in this election cycle, Ted Cruz is on the endangered list. That according to the Capitol Hill newspaper roll call this morning in its ongoing analysis of the closest Senate races in the run-up to the midterms. Another race which has proven a surprise is for the congressional seat of retiring Republican Ted Poe. In the past, Poe regularly won by a wide margin, but Dan Crenshaw is in a serious battle to retain GOP control of Texas's 2nd District against Democratic challenger Don Litton. The two faced off last week at the University of Houston and Andrew Schneider of Houston Public Media tells us how it went down. Crenshaw talked about his support for building a wall on the Mexican
3: border.
4: No, nobody seriously thinks that we're going to put a wall across every single inch. It's just a geographic impossibility. Um, but we do need the funding to actually get it started because in, in the end, the, 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 the goal is to prevent someone from crossing from point A to point B. We need some.
3: Litton called for protecting women's health care access and reproductive rights.
5: Government should be staying out of the doctor's office. We don't want do- government in the doctor's office telling women or anybody what they can, they can, do, should do with a legal procedure like abortion. So-
3: in past cycles, such a contest in Texas' second congressional district wouldn't even be close. Poe regularly won re-election by double digits. But in 2018? It is competitive, I think. David Brenham teaches political science at UH Downtown and attended the debate.
6: You have to do well if you're a Republican if you expect to win. If you run poorly, I think there's a very good chance that you could lose this district. The
3: district includes wealthy conservative suburbs in northeastern Harris County, like Kingwood. It also has more liberal Houston neighborhoods, like Montrose.
6: But in that center part, where it connects in the northwest side, I think you're going to see a lot of change in that part of the district.
3: That's because Hispanic residents now make up about a third of the district's population, and that percentage is growing. This is also an area hit especially hard during Harvey. Rice University political scientist Bob Stein says Litton has been aggressive in courting the votes of flood victims. I have seen his, some of his uh, public meetings where he goes around telling people, have you gotten your small business loan application in? Have you gotten your FEMA money in? He's sort of kind of replacing, because there's no incumbent here, what Ted Poe would normally do as a congressman. Crenshaw certainly hasn't ignored the issue of Harvey. During his debate with Lytton, Crenshaw said he'd seek a seat on the House Armed Services Committee, where he could pressure the Army Corps of Engineers to complete flood infrastructure projects. But that's not the central message of his campaign. The campaign has played up. I'm a Republican. I support the party. And I support Donald Trump. Um, That may be enough, but it's not enough, I think, to kind of inspire um, what I will call a heavy turnout in the district. Even with a lower-than-usual turnout, Stein says Republicans probably hold the edge for now. But nobody's putting a lot of investment in the future. No one thinks this district is going to be here in 2022. Why? In between now and 2022 is the next census. We're going to get three new congressional seats in Texas, and they're going to have to go somewhere. It will most likely be Republicans who will decide where those seats go during the next round of redistricting. But in drawing safe GOP seats, they'll still have to work around growing minority populations that are more likely to vote Democratic. The configurations will be to protect longer-term veterans. If Crenshaw wins this time, he's not high on the seniority list. Which means that Crenshaw needs to do more than just win this November if he's hoping to last in Congress. He needs to win big. In Houston, I'm Andrew
0: Schneider. Wow, that's amazing. Three new congressional seats for Texas. What a testament to how the state's growing. Wells Dunbar, our social media editor, monitoring what Texans are talking about on this Thursday. Hi,
7: David. Yeah, lots we're watching, including the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation controversy as the FBI's additional background check arrives on Capitol Hill. Folks are talking about the secrecy surrounding the support. Hard copy only held in a secure room. No emails, no PDFs. Jess Baum, she tweets us that it would be nice if they had released the reports to the public so we can see for ourselves. Am I the only one who thinks they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes? Well, closer to home, David, we're also keeping an eye on state races as part of Texas Decides project, and yes. we want to hear from our friends and listeners, they can go to our website, our newly redesigned website, TexasStandard.org, and look for the Texas Decides post titled, We Want Your Questions About the 2018 Midterm Elections, and their folks can submit their questions, or they can just even tweet them at us using the hashtag TX Decides, and a public radio reporter could work with them to answer said question. Love it's it. a really cool little service uh, we're trying to ha- see take off here, That's, and uh... it's still more news, David. Yes. It's national taco day and on twitter and facebook we're hearing about texans favorite spots for tacos i'll be back with seconds later in the show i
0: like how you put that uh of course that's hashtag tx decides. let yes, us know sir. about your favorite taco texas reach out to us at texas standard wells back in 35
1: support comes from texas children's hospital focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the lone star state and beyond for more than 60 years texas children's hospital personalized care for every child more at texaschildrens.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com.
0: Happy Thursday, Texas. It's The Standard. I'm David Brown. A coastal spine or an Ike dyke? These are among the decisions facing state and federal officials as they close in On completing a multi-billion dollar plan to protect coastal Texas from hurricanes, the Texas Tribune reporting that the Army Corps of Engineers, with help from the Texas General Land Office, is wrapping up years of work on potential blueprints to keep cities like Houston in particular better protected from the next monster storm. The four plans on the table include improvements to current levees as well as the construction of new ones. The plans also include building so-called navigation gates, which would protect cities like Houston from deadly storm swells. The winning proposal is expected to be made public at the end of the month, followed by a public comment period, so watch this space. The cost of the recommended plan has a price tag of between 22 and $30 billion. Speaking of your money, yesterday attorneys for the state of Texas went before a federal appeals panel to push back against a ruling that would strip millions in special education funding from Texas schools. Texas Public Radio's Ryan Poppy tells us that this battle pits Texas against the U.S. Department of
5: Education. The case centers on the 2011-2012 school year when the state reduced special education spending by $33.3 million. The federal government says Texas should lose that same amount of federal funding because it violated a federal law that required states to spend the same amount of money it received from a matching federal grant on special education services each year. Attorneys representing the Texas Education Agency countered that the state's reduction related to the state having fewer special education students that school year. The case is separate from a federal investigation into the state's special education services program, which found that the state illegally denied these services to students by setting an 8.5 percent cap on the number of qualifying students. Thomas Ratliff is the former vice chair of the State Board of Education.
8: a a legislative budget document from years ago that said, hey, if we limit the number of special ed students to this, we can keep the appropriations level at that. If you went above the cap, you got a negative consequence on your accountability rating from the state. And so districts made sure they stayed below
4: the cap.
5: Which is exactly why Steve Alleman with Disability Rights Texas says the 8.5% cap and the reduction in special education spending are related cases.
3: One of the premises and foundations of the state's defense is that we had fewer students in special education, so therefore we spent less. Well, the only reason why you had fewer students across the state was because you were messaging to school districts in your accountability system to identify fewer students.
5: Alleman worries what might happen if the state loses its case. If it loses the $33.3 million in federal funding for special education, he wonders, will the state legislature make up the difference? In Austin, I'm Ryan Poppy. You remember
0: that hot air balloon crash that killed 16 people near Lockhart, Texas, back in 2016? Well, Congress is getting close to making it a federal requirement that hot air balloon pilots... Undergo medical exams. The San Antonio Express News reporting that the requirements included in a bipartisan funding bill for the Federal Aviation Administration. Senators approved the measure yesterday. A National Transportation Safety Board investigation into that hot air balloon crash in Lockhart found that the pilot's poor health and the use of prescription medication contributed to the tragedy. Right now, FAA policy does not require hot air balloon pilots to have medical exams. The president's expected to sign it into law once it reaches his desk.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, you may already be using your phone to pay for your morning coffee, scan your boarding pass at the airport. Lots of us deposit checks and keep track of our finances on the phone, too. But could this technology go further? Could that slab of metal and glass in your hand someday replace your driver's license or even your entire wallet? Our tech expert, Omar Gayaga, says it's already happening for some college students. Hello there, Omar. Hey, David. Good to talk to you. Good to talk with you. How does this work exactly? Are student IDs really being replaced by phone apps and and, and where?
9: Yeah, this, uh, there's a couple of universities that are starting to test this out, and this is sort of a larger movement that we've talked a lot about on the show uh, of of kind of replacing the stuff that's in your actual wallet with your phone. With things like uh, Apple Pay and Samsung Pay that you're already doing for mobile payments, mm-hmm. uh, is now being applied to things like your
0: actual driver's
9: license or your, in some
0: cases, your student ID. I think one of the things that frustrates a lot of folks is that you make these transfers of your credit card to your phone, and and you're using your phone uh, to make these sorts of payments but you're still tethered to your wallet, right? I mean, what's keeping us from going completely walletless and putting everything on the smartphone?
9: Some of it is, is just inertia. Some of it is just that, that it's privacy concerns is people are still have that mental block of I don't want to give up my physical credit card. I don't want to give up my physical ID. Uh, and I don't want to give that up to a digital device that could be hacked or someone could steal. So that, that's sort of the, the mental uh, block there. But, you know, your your wallet can get stolen. Your ID cards can get stolen. They can be skimmed at the at the gas station. So it, it, the privacy and security issues are, are things that are just as much with a physical card than with a digital device.
0: Yeah, it, 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 don't, it though does seem to be bigger than just the mindset. For instance, if I were to show uh, an officer of the law a picture of my driver's license, I'm not so sure how that would fly. Uh, you know, you think about sometimes uh, benefit cards. You have a, a voter registration, for example. Um, how, what what is the next step here, and is it is it possible to make that next logical leap?
9: Well, there was a grant that was awarded in 2016 to a company called Gemalto uh, that, that works in the digital space. So this is already being tested out in, in some states, including uh, Tennessee, Arizona, Utah. Uh, Texas is not one of those states yet, but uh, but we'll probably get there. And the way it would work is that you show, you show, know, if you get stopped by a police officer, you show them the ID and they're able to scan a code on it, similarly to what you do with the boarding pass at the airport. Uh, hmm. So you would not necessarily hand over your phone. You would just show them the image and then they'd be able to pull up that information, Uh, But it's not any different than them, you know, putting in your driver's license number uh, from a digital card. Uh, Now, what a lot of people don't know is that there's already a a law on the books in Texas that allows you to show an officer your uh, proof of insurance. As the, as an image on your phone, you can already do that now. That was that law was passed a while ago, so that that's something that if you are you know you can have that on your phone as an image at all times and use that as your proof of uh, of
0: insurance. So you don't need to uh, stuff a piece of paper into your into your wallet anymore, at least when it comes to the uh, insurance proof of insurance. But are there any other advantages of having a phone-based license? I mean, other than not wanting to have to tote around a wallet?
9: Well, one advantage is that you, uh, there is an option that Jamalta was looking at to be able to disable it if, say, your phone is stolen or uh, it's hacked, that you would be able to remotely uh, have a kill switch where you can get rid of that. Uh, there's also uh, the idea of just having fewer things to carry around, having fewer physical pieces of things to, to have in a wallet that they could easily get lost or damaged or stolen.
0: Well, we, we have to talk about the downside here. I mean, imagine you lose your phone. I can't tell you how many I've lost over the years. And I suppose I would be really worried about that. I mean, I know you can lose your wallet, but uh, your phones. I, I don't know why it is. <laughs> it seems like a lot of us, uh, uh, you know, can't can't keep it with us.
9: Yeah, I think it's because uh, you have so many things on your phone, so many kinds of applications and passwords and all that that, that you worry uh, that if you lose it, it's gonna you know you have a lot of things you gotta fix if that happens. Uh, one of the things that I believe this ID program does that's in testing is similar to what Apple uh, Apple Pay does, which is. The ID is unique to that phone. It cannot be transferred to another phone. If you buy a new phone, you have to do the mm-hmm. process all over again. Mm-hmm. So uh, if it's disabled on that phone, it's not going to be able to be transferred. Of course, you're talking about uh, institutions like the DMV that you know have, have been right. hacked in the past online. So yeah, well, there you might are. be on their side.
0: Hey, find out more at TechMinuteTexas.com. That's where a tech expert, Omar Gayaga, hangs out. We'll see you next week, Omar. Thanks for having
9: me, David.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com.
10: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Alexandra Hart with a roundup of news from across the state. Out-of-pocket costs are on the rise for people who get health insurance through an employer. That's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation Employer Health Benefits Survey, released Wednesday. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports on the findings.
1: The survey found that annual premiums for single coverage through an employer increased about 3 percent. For families, that increase was about 5 percent. Matthew Ray is a health policy analyst with the Kaiser Family Foundation. He says people with employer-based insurance are also seeing a rise in deductibles.
11: So the average deductible is increasing
3: about eight times faster than workers' wages, which means over time, workers, are contrib- workers who use health care services are contributing more money towards uh, health care, paying their deductible, uh, and it's eating into workers' paychecks.
1: Ray says more people also have a plan with deductibles to begin with. He says deductibles are a key way that employers are cutting costs. According to the survey, about half of Americans get their health insurance through an employer. Ashley Lopez, KUT News.
10: Texas lawmakers are looking for ways to reduce opioid abuse. That was the focus of a hearing of the Joint Committee on Prescribing and Dispensing Controlled Substances Wednesday at the Texas Capitol. Members of the Texas House and Senate heard testimony from medical professionals, drugstore representatives, and others about ways to prevent things like doctor shopping and diverting opioids to people to whom they are not prescribed. That could include electronic prescriptions and increasing limits on how much medication doctors can prescribe. Kristen McGarity testified about her chronic pain condition and cautioned lawmakers to keep in mind patients like her who need dosages at the higher end of the scale.
12: If the legislature can't find some sort of safe harbor for the very few pain specialists left, I get to explain to my six-year-old why I can't go to his soccer games anymore, why I can't go for a walk anymore, because the government seems to regulate medicine based on population-level risk-benefit analysis when it should be individual.
10: McGarity also asked legislators to consider that Texans like her are productive, tax-paying citizens because of opioid medication, not in spite of it. The deadline to register to vote is October 9th, but some potential voters who recently registered online may have had their applications rejected by the Texas Secretary of State's office. Voting advocacy group Vote.org says that 2,400 applications it helped facilitate were rejected. State officials say that the digital signatures submitted do not comply with state law. Instead, voters can fill out forms online, but they must still be signed and submitted personally or by mail or fax. Those with rejected applications will still need to resubmit an application before the October 9th deadline. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Alexandra Hart from the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard
1: headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at VoteTexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE.
0: Yet attuned to, to the Texas Standard, I'm David Brown. With the arrival of fall, come some welcome things like cooler weather and Halloween decorations. But the beginning of fall also means flu season is approaching, and lots of people are headed to their local clinic or pharmacy to get their flu shot. After last year's high severity flu season, as reported by the Centers for Disease Control, some may be wondering just how effective this year's flu shot might actually be. Michael Deem is John W. Cox Professor in Biochemical and Genetic Engineering at Rice University. He and his team have been looking into the efficacy of flu vaccines. Professor Deem, welcome to the Texas Standard.
6: Thank you, David. I'm pleased to be with
0: you today. Uh, that, that CDC designation of last year's high severity flu season, I suppose uh, it, it, it makes one wonder whether or not last year's flu vaccines curbed the severity. In other words, did, did last year's vaccine work?
6: Sure. Last year's vaccine was about 20 to 25 percent effective, I would say. So it it had some beneficial effect on curbing the disease, and we're all striving to make the vaccine even more effective next year and the year after.
0: Some uh, effect, but uh, 20 to 25 percent. Put that in perspective of what typically um, uh, we see with flu vaccines.
6: So the efficacy of the vaccine can be between uh, sort of negligible up to perhaps 50 or 60%. It's quite difficult to curb the flu entirely from the vaccine. If we have a vaccine that perfectly matches the virus, then the efficacy could be 50 to 60%.
0: I see. All right. So as you look at uh, this year's flu shot, and for, correct me if, here if, if I'm wrong, but when we talk about people going to the pharmacy or to the clinic to get their flu shot, is everyone getting the same flu shot?
6: There are several different flu shots, so it's possible to get a live attenuated flu shot that is sprayed in the nose, and it's possible to get a shot that is into your arm. There are several types of the shot itself. There's a three-component and a four-component, and there's also a type of shot that has an adjuvant that maybe activates your immune system a bit more as well. So there's several choices for people. If people are allergic to eggs, there are vaccines that are not made in eggs, and if people don't uh, have this allergy to eggs, then there are vaccines that are constructed in eggs.
0: So when you decide that you're going to go get the flu shot, uh, how do you know which is going to be the most effective and or and or uh, how effective it's actually going to be?
6: Sure. So some of the newer types of production are done outside of eggs. They're done in cell-based. So these cell-based vaccines, we might expect they would be a little bit more effective than the egg-based vaccines. That's because to manufacture the vaccines in eggs requires some modification of the virus. And those modifications generally tend to reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine so i think the cell-based vaccines look quite promising as a technology going forward
0: but as you look at um, uh, the flu shot more generically described this year what about the efficacy there is there a way for your team to make a prediction as to the efficacy
6: sure it's likely to be similar to last year possibly even a little bit lower because there is a new strain that is emerging which we call the Arizona strain, and the vaccine is a little bit far from this new Arizona strain. So the, I would say vaccine will be similar in effectiveness to last year, perhaps slightly lower.
0: You've talked about a kind of nuclear arms race we're currently having between effective vaccines and strengthening flu strains. I presume you mean like this Arizona strain?
6: So the flu is constantly under pressure from the vaccine and from prior infection history in individuals to evolve and this evolution of the virus is what leads to the need for new vaccines to be developed uh, every year or every few years against that constantly evolving flu.
0: How do you how do you make a choice or, or or determination as to which vaccine to get and where and I mean the idea of shopping around for a flu vaccine I think is foreign to a lot of folks.
6: So there it's, there's an interesting possibility for people who in the past could not get the flu shot because maybe they were allergic to eggs there is now this Uh, New technology of producing the vaccine in cells, which it does not involve eggs, so it's now possible for people with egg based allergies to still get the flu shot. So that's an interesting choice for people. I would say the cell based vaccines might be better than the egg based vaccine overall, Uh, they're more likely to be more closely representative of the virus itself. And then there is this other possibility of not getting a shot, but getting a spray into the nose. That's a possibility for people as well.
0: And where do people go to find out the information about, like, say, what what sort of vaccine uh, a clinic, a particular clinic or a particular uh, uh, pharmacy might have? Is is that public knowledge or the person that's giving you the vaccine, are they going to know this information?
6: It's always good for people to do a little research beforehand. They could check out the CDC website on influenza and flu vaccines and then they can read a bit about the three or four different types of vaccines that are possible, and then they can ask their doctor or the clinic what is available at that clinic and what might be suitable for them.
0: Michael Deem is Rice's John W. Cox professor in biochemical and genetic engineering. He and his team research the efficacy of flu vaccines. Professor, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us on The Standard.
6: Thanks, David. We're happy to help.
0: And we're coming up on 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time.
1: Support for a Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the State of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at SaveNowForCollege.org.
12: You're listening to The Texas Standard. I'm Marika Flatt, travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine, here with your weekend trip tip. I grew up in the heart of the Texas hill country, but it was only after I moved away to college and then settled in Austin that I found out just how far the hill country stretches. Here's three places you likely haven't heard of where you can experience a hill country haven. For a restorative time away from the hustle and bustle, Rock and Bee Ranch is nestled over 55 peaceful acres between Bernie and Bandera. For a special anniversary or maybe even a quiet honeymoon, Rock and Bee earns an A in hospitality with special touches like your initials on the entrance gate and fresh flowers upon check-in. One of four residences on the ranch, The Love Shack, has a queen bed and a private hot tub. Sit on your porch in the morning and enjoy your coffee while your hostess greets you with fresh breakfast treats. And if you're seeking a bigger nest, choose one of the three larger homes on the property. The Bluff house sleeps up to eight and offers an incredible bird's eye view and an expansive deck with a hot tub that's comfortable enough to seat the whole house. Guests may also bring their dogs or horses along and the property features plenty of hiking trails and a catch-and-release spring-fed creek for fishing or kayaking. I heard about Moon Dance Ranch from a friend that I grew up with. What a diamond in the rough. This large, fun house for rent in Utopia is near Garner State Park. You'll experience the best views the area has to offer. This five-bedroom house was just built last year. The kitchen is expansive and perfectly stocked, with everything you need to serve a big group. In fact, there's two of everything, including two washers and dryers. The living room features a pool table, large sitting area, and big dining table. But my favorite part is outside. There's a pool that overlooks a serene hill country view. Alongside the pool are a patio with plenty of furniture, a ping pong table, and nearby are a golf putting green and a washer's area. And if you're lucky, The owners will send over their baby goats for some petting. And vintage villas on Lake Travis is a great place to stay if you want to be near the lake. There are three villas, each depicting a geographical part of the state. The layout is ideal for big groups of friends or family reunions, as each villa has its own lobby for gathering. There's no pool or activities on site, but you can find plenty to do nearby. A full hill country breakfast is served buffet style each morning to all guests, as part of the room rate. From quiche to fresh fruit salad and hot coffee, it's a great start to your hill country day. That's your weekend trip tip. I'm Marika Flatt for the Texas Standard.
0: Marika Flatt is travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine. You can find out more of her weekend trip tips at TexasStandard.org. Among the many annual traditions in the Lone Star State, few are as well known for its Texas excess as the State Fair of Texas. From outrageously fried confections to big Tex and, of course, the big game, the event held at Dallas's historic Fair Park is larger than life, in some ways, perhaps light years removed from the state fair's smaller, far more modest rural relatives scattered across the Lone Star State, the county fairs that dot our landscape every fall. But this year at the big state fair in the Metroplex, there's a new attraction that certainly recalls the roots of an old-fashioned county fair, and it is proving to be quite the hit in the big city. A birthing barn. Daryl Real is the Senior Vice President of Agriculture and Livestock for the Fair. Daryl, welcome to Texas Standard.
8: Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh,
0: what is a birthing barn exactly?
8: Well, it's uh, just a location on the fairgrounds where we uh, showcase and teach the public about uh, animal births. Um, animals are a part of our, everybody's daily lives, um, and uh, it's a miracle uh, how they are born. Uh, and the birthing barn is a great opportunity to let people know how those animals come into being and uh, as well uh, kind of understand the process so they can appreciate it and also understand how important uh, these animals are to the farmers and ranchers uh, that care for them every day.
0: Uh-huh. Well, well, Darrell, how was this birthing barn idea um, conceived, if you'll uh, pardon the pun?
8: <laughs> or maybe birthed, if yes, you will. Uh, yes, yes sir. if you will. Um, the birthing barn came about, it's actually been on my short list for um, all, close to a decade, to be honest with you. Uh, unfortunately, at the fair, uh, because everything is so big and so great and so crazy, um, space is always limited out here. Um, so the, uh, we finally had the space. Uh, come available. So we were able to jump on this idea, uh, again, going back to the idea that we wanted to showcase uh, this process for the public so they can understand how important this is uh, in the life cycle and caring for livestock.
0: So now you've got a whole space that's just dedicated to livestock incubation and the birthing process. But of course, you're not going to be, there aren't going to be uh, heifers giving birth all all the time, obviously. So, so how, how do you, how do you arrange this space? What is it that you see if you're there? And I guess Uh, if you're lucky enough to to, to be there for an actual live birth.
8: Well, the the space uh, has lots of live animals, of course, on display, and we have um, birthing areas that are set up specifically where we can... Um, uh, isolate the mother that's about to give birth um, into an area where we can take special care of her uh, during that time because that's what we do normally. Um, we just have those spaces uh, where folks can also view and learn from this as well. Uh, we also have um, our birthing center manager, Rich Kniebel, is a great uh, gentleman. Uh, brought him all the way from northern Indiana to mm-hmm. help us to do this process. And uh, he grabs the microphone and he shares with folks. Uh, about what's happening when that process goes along but if you get there and there's not anything birthing uh, during that moment uh, we have um, lots of educational signage that leads folks through we also have uh, staff there that can answer questions and talk to folks about uh, the process and what's going on in there Mm -hmm. uh, so that any day you come you can learn and we, we do have lots of, uh, we have tried to schedule lots of births to happen during this time, uh, but 24 days and 24 hours in each of those uh, requires lots of animals to make sure that yeah, we have births imagine. all the time.
0: I would imagine, But I, and I understand you actually did have a live birth uh, earlier this week, Tuesday. How'd that go?
8: We sure did, and it, it went really well Um uh, had a, a little dairy calf, jersey calf born um, on Tuesday morning, and uh, folks got to witness it. It was during open hours of the fair, which is great. We've had several births already, uh, but that was actually the first one that happened during opening hours of the fair. All of the other ones have happened at night, unfortunately, <laughs> so we couldn't show them off
0: uh, whenever that happened. Well, now let, let me ask you about that because I think some people might be kind of concerned. Is this. Is this okay for, for the animals themselves? What about what about the animals and their welfare amid all this? Uh... The,
8: the animal welfare is the utmost concern, and that's actually the goal of the exhibit is to share with people how important animal welfare is um, to um, the livestock, uh, people that are raising livestock and farmers and ranchers. Um, we, we care for those animals. There's, a, um, there's quiet places for them uh, to be. Uh, we make sure that the, the birthing barn is actually a very soothing place uh, to be because we want it to be calm. We want them to be calm because it is uh, uh, a time of heightened stress for the animal, just like it would be for any living being uh, when they give birth. Um, so uh, that's the job of our staff is to make them feel comfortable and to assist them um, as needed uh, during that birthing process.
0: Darryl Rial is the Senior Vice President of Agriculture and Livestock for the Fair. He's in charge of the Birthing Barn at the Texas State Fair. Uh, Darryl, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard.
8: Thank you so much for
1: having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU. Lead On.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. At around 10 in the evening on September 6th, as Amber Geiger pulled into her apartment complex in Dallas, she was wearing her police uniform after a long shift. She stepped into an apartment she claimed she thought was her own and shot and killed Botham Jean, uh, an unarmed man in his own apartment. Geiger says she thought he was an intruder. But when she pulled the trigger, was Geiger acting in her capacity as a Dallas police officer or a civilian? KERA's Christopher Connolly reports that this fact alone could make a huge difference in the outcome of this troubling story.
4: Nearly a month after the shooting, there's still a lot about that night that we don't know. Details of exactly what happened between Amber Geiger and Botham Jean. But one fact that came out early has made it into practically every news story. The off-duty officer was still wearing her uniform when she claims she went to the wrong apartment. She was still in her uniform. In uniform. Full uniform. Still in uniform during the incident. That matters, according to Lee Merritt. He's the lawyer for Botham John's family, who says the family plans to sue not just Geiger, but also the city of Dallas. Merritt didn't return KERA's request for comment, but he's been connecting Geiger's actions to the Dallas Police Department.
7: It's our position that she was operating under the color of state authority. When people saw her in the public, they believed they were looking at a police officer. And that's critically important because that gives her access, that gives her, in a lot of ways, deferential treatment to the public.
11: That use of the phrase color of state authority is the language of a very important federal civil rights statute, 42 U.S.C., Section 1983.
4: Jennifer Lauren teaches civil rights law at the University of Texas Law School in Austin. She says Section 1983 is the part of federal law that allows people to sue state or local officials for violating their constitutional rights. The first step in bringing a lawsuit like this, she says, is to demonstrate
11: that in the course of undertaking the conduct that uh, allegedly caused the violation of rights, that they were acting under color of law, that they were using their state authority in some way.
4: Basically, that Geiger was acting as a police officer when she shot Botham Jean that she was not just a regular person. Lauren says there are a number of factors that a court would look at to make that determination, including some that may not be publicly known yet. The fact that Geiger was off-duty, Lauren says that may not be the most important factor.
11: A police officer, even though officially off-duty, right, clocked out, might still be using their official power or using the trappings of their office or using the authority that their position gives them to undertake the the actions that are complained of.
4: If the Jean's lawyer Lee Merritt can establish that Geiger was acting as a cop when she shot Botham Jean, then he can argue that she, as an agent of the city government, deprived Jean of his constitutional rights. Geiger's attorney hasn't commented on the potential lawsuit. He's called the killing a tragic mistake. But Lee Merritt says the city of Dallas is also responsible. The city declined comment for this story. Art Brender says it could be difficult to connect the city to Geiger's actions. He's a lawyer in Fort Worth who's tried police misconduct cases.
8: To hold her employer, the city responsible under 1983, you have to show that there was a custom or policy of unconstitutional actions, which that policy directly caused his death.
4: Brender says the Jean family's legal team might look at her record of discipline and use of force, how officers in the department are trained to use force, and how they're disciplined if they use too much. Essentially, to prove Dallas's liability, they'd have to point to some policy or practice within the department that itself is unconstitutional, which Geiger was following and that could have led to Jean's death. The only way Dallas would be responsible is if Dallas itself somehow was, was
8: responsible for her actions
4: independently of what she did. Brender says that's a really high bar, and he says these federal civil rights cases can drag on for years. All of this happens in federal court, by the way, because Texas law makes it pretty much impossible to sue governments for any kind of damages. In Dallas, I'm Christopher Connolly for the Texas Standard.
0: And you are listening to The Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar, social media editor here at The Standard. You know, I'm so grateful for the refresh button here because you you just have to follow (laughs) these events in the Kavanaugh confirmation process just by the minute. Uh, can I share a couple of things? Yeah, please uh, here, do. This is uh, New York Times. Uh, it says, uh, GOP increasingly confident Kavanaugh will be confirmed. White House expressing confidence. That's no real surprise, I suppose. Uh, GOP leaders, however, are being hesitant to declare Judge Kavanaugh in the clear before three undecided Republicans had a chance to examine the results yep. themselves. Washington Post saying uh, that Charles, Charles Grassley, who's the Judiciary Committee chairman, as, as most people now know, Uh, says uh, that uh, the probe finds, and this is his quote, "...no hint of misconduct." By Kavanaugh,
7: yeah, yeah. Interesting that we're beginning to get these details, uh, especially considering the sort of extreme secrecy that the uh, FBI background report into Brett Kavanaugh has right. treated uh, with. At one point, uh, David, the term "skiff" was trending on Twitter. Skiff? Yeah, that's short for sensitive compartmented information facility, and that's essentially the secure room on Capitol Hill where these senators were granted access to this report in one-hour blocks. And and yeah, speaking to those senators, I saw shortly before I came in here, Jeff Flake. I've been hearing about him a whole I don't -hmm. know if he said he was exactly a yes vote, but he was pleased to see that the FBI, in his words, did not turn up any corroborating uh, evidence in this new pass. So lots of lots of stuff to consider. Uh, Interesting comment here via Facebook from William Newbill. He says that The New Yorker, New York Times, Washington Post and others in our free press gleaned far more corroborating evidence than the FBI. Unfortunately, despite White House claims, the FBI didn't interview relevant witnesses and did not gather relevant evidence in the matter. And um, I don't have the exact number right now, but I think I saw that the FBI uh, spoke to, I believe, seven or eight people.
0: Yeah, I was trying to do my own count on that because it appeared that they had initially four names and that was expanded to five more. I may have that backwards, but but I had counted somewhere in the order of eight or nine. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's not clear because yeah. no, this report will not be made public. And what's more, it wasn't a summary. This was of of uh, you know an FBI conclusion. What this was was summaries of the interviews. Yeah. So, uh, and But the public will not get a chance and, and, to see And that.
7: in a supplemental fashion, sort of right. going back and, and sussing out some of the stuff. So obviously a key procedural vote uh, coming up tomorrow, I believe. So it's going to be the big story over the weekend. Well, here is a hashtag that we can all get behind. Shifting gears, the hashtag National Taco Day is trending and hoo boy, are we getting a lot of recommendations I'll for bet. great places to eat in Texas via Twitter? Jim Washburn says, Las Tortugas in Rockdale is new and has an excellent menu. Tacos, tortas, gorditas, burritos, basole, as well as tacos. Their breakfast tacos are the best I ever ate. Quite the ringing endorsement wow. there. The On, yeah <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. On Facebook, Jaime Solorza says, just about any Mexican restaurant in El Paso makes good tacos. Yeah. The man knows what he's talking about. Although he does shout out Good Luck Cafe's Tacos. Tacos de deshebrada I think that's the shredded beef, mm-hmm. it says they are excellent. So many more recommendations and so many more tacos to talk about. And i got to say, I'm pretty dang hungry right now <laughs> yeah. after looking at all this stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, our, our family favorites Taco Ranch uh, here, in, uh, here in town. But uh, we'd love to continue to pick up yours and share them with the rest of the Lone Star State. We're out of time for the big broadcast. We'll be back here tomorrow. Hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Thursday.
1: Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.